This morning I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 3, the first 15 verses. And they will, we will have the scripture on the screen in case you didn't take a Bible along with you this morning. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you. This will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people up out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in our text this morning, we're catching up with Moses for a second week. Last week, Pastor Amanda preached on the birth of Moses and the ways that God uh, was at work to save his life when Pharaoh was trying to kill all of the baby Hebrew boys. Now, since that part of the story, Moses has obviously grown up. Moses grows up in the household of Pharaoh, likely in Pharaoh's palace, a place of immense privilege and comfort, especially compared to that of his Hebrew relatives. 
While his Hebrew relatives made bricks and worked in stone quarries, Moses walked halls where the walls were lined with paintings, the furniture accented with gold, and the floors covered in glazed tiles. He walks these halls in his white linen robes, perfectly airy and light, ideal for the hottest days, while the Israelites labor in the hot sun. And while the normal folks in Egypt would eat fish out of the Nile for their breakfast, Moses' table was dotted with gold and silver plates filled with rare meats, special bread, and fruit. Moses was likely living a very privileged and comfortable life. But eventually, when Moses became an adult, probably around 40 years old, he decided to venture out of his place of privilege and comfort. He went to check out the place where his own people worked. Maybe he heard that it was a little rough, but he wasn't prepared for what he saw. When he saw an Egyptian beating one of his own people, a Hebrew, he was filled with rage and he killed the Egyptian. Pharaoh heard about it. Of course, murder was not legal, not even for the adoptive son in Pharaoh's household. So maybe that's why Pharaoh tried to have him killed, an eye for an eye kind of thing. Or maybe he feared that Moses would create an uprising among the enslaved Hebrews. Pharaoh's power, Pharaoh's hold on the Hebrews is threatened by Moses' indignation and rage. And so now for the second time in Moses' life, Pharaoh tries to kill him. Moses runs away into the desert in hopes of living out the rest of his life as an anonymous, Hebrew-looking Egyptian. He runs to the desert, where he marries a nice woman, has a nice family, and takes a nice job as a shepherd of his family's business. He escapes to a place far from the cries of the oppressed Hebrews, far from the murderous power of Pharaoh. But Exodus chapter 2 does not end with Moses safely tucked into his bed, surrounded by a nice new family. Exodus chapter 2 ends with the cries of the Israelites back in Egypt. The cries of the Israelites haunt this whole story. I mean, forget Hans Zimmer's epic soundtrack to the Prince of Egypt from Disney. The cries of the enslaved Israelites are the real soundtrack of Exodus 2 and 3. Moses had run away from those cries to save his own life, but of course their cries went up to God. God looked on the Israelites. He was concerned about them. So the question that every reader of this narrative at the end of chapter 2 naturally asks is this. If God is so concerned about them, then what is God going to do about it? As I read about and studied this part of the life of Moses this week, it felt a little bit like looking into a mirror, albeit a very foggy and old mirror, and just seeing the outlines of a portrait of many of our own lives and behaviors at times, including my own. Just over 10 years ago, I accompanied my church's youth group on a service trip to Memphis, Tennessee. 
This group of high school students and leaders were plopped down in an area of Memphis where poverty, racial tension, and unemployment were the norm and not the exception. So on our day off from working, we took a trip to the National Civil Rights Museum. This museum is located at the motel where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on the balcony outside of his room. That's the picture you see on the screen. And outside of the museum, we met a woman sitting at a folding table with pamphlets and signs. And she was protesting the gentrification of the neighborhood. That means that wealthier folks and businesses were moving in and pushing out the long-term, mostly black residents who could no longer afford the higher rents. Now, gentrification is a highly contentious issue. But she was trying to point out that the racial and the economic issues that Martin Luther King was addressing back in the 60s were still persisting in Memphis. The volume of the soundtrack of the cries of the oppressed was getting louder and louder in our ears. We wanted to do something about it. Now, we didn't lash out and kill someone like Moses did. It's a foggy mirror, I said. But our comfortable lives became unsettled by these realities. We tried to help out by doing projects around people's houses, fixing leaky roofs, painting over graffiti, and we did that for about a week. Eventually, though, we turned down the volume on the soundtrack of the oppressed and went back to our own nice lives, our nice houses, our nice meals, our nice jobs and schools. Now, many of us this morning also live incredibly comfortable and privileged lives. We have access to most, if not all, of what we need to thrive and even more. We have safe shelter, good food, access to health care and quality education. Many of us have the ability to work and earn a livable wage. But that same soundtrack is still playing in our world. And it's the sound of the cries of the oppressed and marginalized people crying out for living wages and affordable housing, for an end to racialized violence south of our border, for clean water to drink and clean air to breathe, for equal access to quality education, for an end to human trafficking. In short, we still hear this soundtrack of people crying out for the ability to live a life that reflects their worth and dignity as image bearers of God. When we're confronted with the sound of these cries, I do think that most of us want to help. We want to do something about it. But it's not always clear that our own reactions are helpful. We may react in anger, like Moses, which potentially ends up being more destructive than helpful. Or it might feel like our own efforts go about as deep as a coat of paint, covering up graffiti that will just appear again overnight. And so we get caught up in this same cycle as Moses, where our attempts to address the problem are ineffective or even worse, landing us outside the city again, 
where we can turn down the volume and live our nice lives in peace. But this story doesn't end with us all tucked into our nice beds at the end of the day. The cries for help go up to God. God hears their groaning. God remembers his covenant with creation. God looks on them and is concerned. God has not turned down the volume. So the question we continue to wonder is if God is so concerned, what is God going to do about it? God hears the Israelites and empowers Moses to return to a dangerous vocation to liberate the oppressed Israelites. Moses is living his anonymous life as a Hebrew-looking Egyptian, tending to the sheep when he wanders upon a bush at Mount Horeb, God's mountain, also known as Mount Sinai. A fire in a bush catches his attention, but it's not being burned up, which is weird, so he goes to check it out. Reverend Keith Anderson likens this bush to the beating heart of God, a heart that burns with compassion and justice for the oppressed of every time and every place. Moses, Moses, God calls him by name. He is no longer this anonymous Hebrew-looking Egyptian wandering around the desert with his sheep. He is known by name, and he is called by name. Now, growing up in the household of Pharaoh meant that Moses would have been pretty familiar with the different kinds of ancient Egyptian gods and the ways that the Egyptian priests would try to summon the presence of those gods. But this is not just a generic religious experience of some unknown Egyptian deity. This burning bush reflects the presence of a holy God. Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then this voice of God turns up the volume on the soundtrack of the oppressed so that Moses hears it clearly again, just like God hears it. And God tells Moses his great plan. I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them out into the land, into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. God has finally come down and is going to do something about this soundtrack of suffering. God is finally going to rescue his people from Egypt. But that's not the end of the story yet, either. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Hold on a minute. I picture Moses' eyes growing suddenly large while the color drains from his face as he prepares to uh, argue with God. Walter Brueggemann points out that this is a stunning and radical turn in the narrative. He writes, what has been all pious promise 
now becomes a rigorous demand, come. In one brief utterance, this grand intention of God has become a specific human responsibility, a human obligation, and a human vocation. It is Moses who will do what Yahweh said, and Moses will run the risk that Yahweh seems so ready to take on. It is Moses who will meet with Pharaoh. It is Moses who will bring out my people. It is Moses who acts on God's behalf to save God's people. Moses tried to leave that mess behind when he went out into the desert to live his nice life. But he is about to be put right square in the middle of this soundtrack of suffering. He understands what's happening here. And in the course of his conversation with God, he objects five times. He offers reasons, alibis, and excuses against this call. Moses immediately and intuitively knows that this call on his life to put God's promise into action is a threat to his own life. But God does not leave him alone to deal with the suffering Israelites. God empowers Moses to return to Egypt by offering another soundtrack that will now be on repeat for the rest of Scripture. I will be with you. I will give you a sign. I am who I am. This is the soundtrack of a call. God promises his real presence. God offers signs of this presence. And God reveals God's own self. When God offers Moses his name, this is meant to be a kind of personal self-disclosure. This is no longer a God that is only known by his proximity to other people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a God who is now known in God's own self. In the moment of revelation and then into the future, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. The gospel writer John seems very much aware of this soundtrack of a call. It's on repeat throughout his whole gospel. A promise of God's presence a sign of God's presence, and God's own self-revelation, I am. Only this time, the soundtrack is the voice of Jesus, the one who became flesh and dwelled among us, a promise of God's presence. Moses hid his face because he was afraid of the glory of God revealed in the bush, but the gospel writer John says that we have seen God's glory in Jesus. This glory is gradually revealed more and more through seven signs. In John, Jesus' miracles aren't called miracles. They are called signs. The first sign is when Jesus turns the water into wine. And then the seventh, the last, is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And seven times throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus reveals himself through a series of I am statements. 
I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am who I am. Jesus is God's clearest self-revelation. Jesus is the one who now calls us by name out of our anonymous and comfortable existence into the noise of the pain and the suffering of the world with this message of God's final deliverance through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so Jesus tells his disciples, as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. Go. And so we have an answer to our question. If God is so concerned about the suffering of the world, then what is God going to do about it? Well, it sounds like God is going to send us back into the deafening sounds of the world's suffering. God empowers us to follow this dangerous vocation with the sound of God's promises and the sound of God's name replaying in our ears. God says to us, in Jesus, I will be with you. In Jesus, I have given you a permanent sign of my presence. And in Jesus, I have most clearly revealed who I am and who I will be. It can be kind of overwhelming to think about what this means for all of us. Does this mean that everyone here ought to quit their day jobs as teachers and engineers and truck drivers and go to the places of the world where there is the most suffering? I mean, this is the call of God for some people. But for many of us this morning, this call is first of all a call to listen like God listens. My friend Gil has helped me to understand this call more and more. Gil used to be a pastor of a kind of typical CRC congregation. So one year he went along with his youth group on a mission trip. They were going to volunteer at a soup kitchen. So they showed up to the soup kitchen on Tuesday night and said, all right, we're here to help. And the woman in charge said, great, grab a tray, sit down with one of the folks eating the meal and chat with them for the night. He clarified, no, we're, we're from the church. We're here to help. Yes, she said, I understand. The people here don't need you to put something on their plates. We have lots of people here to do that. What they could use is a friend, someone to chat with them, someone to hang out with them. Right now, they don't need service. They need your friendship. This woman at the soup kitchen understood that our first impulse, would we encounter something like poverty or homelessness, is charity. We try to do something to quickly solve the problem, often on our own terms. But what really needs to happen first is for us to turn up the volume again. Let ourselves be affected by the different perspectives that might make us uncomfortable. We need to listen like God listens. To first let the soundtrack of suffering reach our ears and then listen for the unique ways that God will call each of us to respond in humility 
in a way that honors the voice and dignity of every image bearer. And if this sounds to you like a recipe for despair, then listen for the other soundtrack as well. It's God saying to us, in Jesus, I will be with you. In Jesus, I have given you a permanent sign of my presence. And in Jesus, I have most clearly revealed who I am and who I will be. People of God, it is at this name, the name of Jesus, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth for the glory of God, for the sake of God's coming kingdom of peace. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am, thank you for this gift of your word. Help us to receive what we have heard. Move us to respond in humility to the sound of the world's suffering. We go with your promises. We go with your signs of your love in Jesus and with your holy name on our lips. Amen.